2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. When you see therefore written in your Bible as you're reading, as you're studying on your own, or as you're, you're being taught, it's saying there's a previous premise, and now we're going to build upon that. People have said that's what the therefore is there for, but you have to look back a little bit to remind yourself which promises are being spoken of here. What is he referring back to at the end of chapter 6? There were many promises listed there, and please listen to these. God told the Corinthians, and he's telling the church today, that we belong to him. At the end of chapter 6, he says, you are my son's and daughters, and I'm your father. That's a promise. You're in my family. I've, I've brought you in. You belong to me, and, and I belong to you. Therefore, how should we live? Another promise from the end of chapter 6 is that God dwells in us, that he lives in us. If you've believed in Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you, you're no longer your own. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's living in you, breathing in you. What a promise. What a truth to belong to the Lord as sons and daughters and to have him dwell in us. He said more at the end of chapter 6. Listen to this. I'm going to walk among you. God is not far off. He desires to be near to you, for you to be near to him, for you to Live your life, listen to this, step by step, moment by moment, breath by breath, walking with the Lord. What promises? You're walking with God. He's living in you. You're a part of his family. He's adopted you as sons and daughters. Therefore, how should we live? Therefore, how should we act? And he's speaking here clearly to the beloved, to those that he loves because they are belonging to him as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, you have some precious promises, beloved. And then he goes on to say, because you have these promises, you should not embrace filthiness. That's talking about our sin, isn't it? And it says here that we have filthiness of the body and of the flesh. It's true that some of our sins, they're very physical but there's a spiritual darkness, too, that our souls can be pulled into. And he's saying, since you have all these wonderful promises, cleanse yourself. Don't embrace filthiness. Our applications today will have a don't and a do. So the first one is, don't embrace filth, but perfect holiness. Our sin really is what the Bible says it is. It's filthy. It's not meant to be played with. It's not meant to be toyed with. This is God's truth delivered to us. Sometimes we don't see our sin as really that bad, that gross, that yucky. It is not meant to be toyed with. No more than sewage is meant to be toyed with. No more than maggots, I'm trying to think of the grossest thing I can, is meant to be toyed with. You wouldn't play with that. You wouldn't think it's okay to have a little bit of it around. Now the world is telling us, 
that if we are sinners, it's really not that bad. But the Bible calls it what it is, that it's filth. And I'm supposed to let God wash my mind and, and my whole being so that I realize that there's a filthiness there and I should not have it in my life. I should cleanse myself from it because I'm a child of God. Because he's, he's purchased me with his very own life given on the cross. And then it says here that we should be perfecting holiness. Don't misunderstand the word of God. We are not perfect. We're far from it. It's a process. It's perfecting holiness. Isn't that what the word says here? And that is, since you're a child of God, since he dwells in you, let that process, don't live this sheltered, well, I'm good enough the way I am right now. Well, we can't be good enough to be saved. And once we're saved, God sanctifies us. He starts perfecting us into his image. The only perfect one is the Lord himself. But because we belong to him, we're setting aside the filthiness, we're cleansing ourselves from the filthiness, and we are becoming more like him every day. Is that happening in your life? I think of what it says in, in 2 Peter, the first chapter, where it says, whereby we have received these great and precious promises, exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature. The divine nature is becoming more like Christ. And since we have these promises, we're to set aside the filthiness that we know is, is coming back all the time. We've got to be on guard against it so that he can perfect us into being more like him. This cleanse ourselves. Did you notice that Paul includes himself in this cleansing, right? Let us cleanse ourselves, he says. Not just let you, but let us. Let the church, let all of us who are in Christ cleanse ourselves. The scripture is making it clear that we have conscious choices to remain separate from sin. That we can steer clear of it, that we can run away from evil. Now, this certainly does not mean that we can cleanse ourselves like we can wash our sins away, that we can make ourselves right and pure before God to go to heaven. That's not the meaning of it. But here it brings the personal choice that each of us have, that we have within us the capacity to either pursue sin or to run from it, to either wash ourselves of it or to say, I'm just going to lay around in it. And isn't it clear here that because of the promises, you and I are supposed to say, no, I'm going to steer clear of that. I'm going to no make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. This is similar to what James says in chapter 4. Verse 8 of his book, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So do you see, we are washed clean by Jesus, but we also have the responsibility to steer clear of that filthiness that we know entangles us so easily again and say, no, I'm gonna, I want to be unstained from the world is a word to me anyways. I don't know if it is to you. How, how, how weird it is, how off it is. But the question is, is are, we, are we mindful of the distance and the last portion of Scripture said the separation that we need from that, that we need to make it clear, that's not my life. That's not who I am. That's, that's not who I am in Christ. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, the word tells us. So don't embrace filth. That, that should be something we don't want to do. But perfect holiness. The apostle continues to write in verse 2 and says this. 
open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. So, second application, don't invent wrongs, but open your heart. Again, some in Corinth had closed themselves off to the Apostle Paul and to Timothy and Titus. They had invented, they had fabricated reasons that they should not listen to Paul, that they should not listen to Timothy, that they should not listen to Titus. They had invented something in their minds that Paul had wronged them somehow. Now they needed this instruction, this correction, these reminders. And look at this. If you can find a problem with the instructor, even if it's not legitimate, then you don't have to listen to the instruction. If there's an issue with the teacher, then that must mean you don't need to be taught. Now, they shouldn't have had this problem with Paul. He makes that clear, but they did. So Paul gives them this admonition to open their hearts, to be soft once again to what he would say to them. Don't make it out to be as though you have been wronged when you haven't. That is a part of our nature to find fault. Now, if there is a legitimate corruption or cheating that needs to be dealt with, then please do. But if you're in a, situa- in a situation where you've begun to think that you've been wronged and you haven't, open up your heart again. I see in the body of Christ, all of us, that there's, there's a pettiness that the enemy can use to divide us. Things, he, he whispers, our flesh gets in the way, and pretty soon we have these walls up towards each other, and we really shouldn't. Now, if it's legitimate, pray about it and confront the person. But if you can't talk to them about it, and you just want to mumble and grumble and talk to other people about it, Maybe it's time to open your heart and see that some of those complaints are not legitimate. The Corinthian church wasn't that much different than we are today. This reminder to not invent wrongs. If they're really there, then deal with it biblically. But if they're not, and you don't have an open heart anymore, and the reality is that you haven't been cheated, there's not corruption, you haven't been wronged, open your heart again, let it be soft. There is a wonderful freedom to being at peace with all people. And that's what the Bible tells us to do. Now, I'm not saying that we should respect all people or necessarily listen to the advice of all people, but to be at peace with all men and to say, I'm open, I'm ready. I'm not constantly playing the victim. I personally can't stand it when people are victimizing themselves all the time. It just bugs me. But then do I turn around and do the same thing? Don't you see it in the world? It's like we have people that are extremely blessed in so many ways. They have so many material things. They have so much fame, fortune, and then they complain. And you're like, come on, what's the deal with you? Yeah, like, do we get that way in the church? Oh, poor me, I'm being slighted. You know what? That might be an invention of your own mind. Open your heart again. It's the design of God for us to be used in each other's lives. Don't invent wrongs. So Paul writes to these Corinthians, he says, open your hearts to us. The reality is you haven't been cheated. You made that up. They had complaints against him, didn't they? You didn't come and visit us when you should have. You're not as good a preacher in person as you are in your letters. And you just start thinking, it it sounds like that's pretty superficial. It sounds like you're not lending understanding. 
Sounds like you're being really, really critical. And that's the nature of who we are apart from God. So he says, let the new nature take hold, the nature of the divine, the nature of Jesus, and open your hearts to us. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. How about this application? Don't be condemned, but be corrected. Do you see that Paul makes it clear from the start that he's not bringing up this issue, these complaints, this pettiness to condemn them, but in order to see them corrected and and comforted. Condemnation doesn't have hope attached to it. And you must be constantly sorting out in your life what's condemnation and what's conviction. Condemnation leaves us desperate. It leaves us in despair. It makes it so we don't see the way of God before us. Have you been in condemnation before where where it's, it's dismal there's no light there's no hope you are feeling really guilty you are having lots of regret but there's no forgiveness we do and then we don't know what to do with our feelings sometimes and we must allow the word and the spirit to sort them out and say if you're in christ there's no condemnation that's not the intent of the correction not so that somebody can say you know what your focus is in the wrong place you're off track therefore you're just so down on yourself that you can't lift up your head and live for the Lord. No, I don't say this to condemn you, but that you would be comforted. Now, being convicted is actually good. When God is using his spirit, his people, his word to correct, does it hurt at first? It does hurt at first to be convicted. But as we grow in the Lord, we learn that that conviction ends in comfort because it's not hopeless. Paul even says here that he's filled with boasting for what God has already done in them. And do this not as a point of flattery, but to bring people back to the truth. Look at what God has done in your life. Look at how much he's accomplished. Look at what happens when you open your heart and you lean on him. Don't be condemned. We're on this journey together. We're running together. We're walking together. And Paul says, I'm not sheepish about what I am saying. The part of of the teacher, the the part of the person who is to exhort, is is not to be one that's apologetic. If it's truth, then it should be spoken, but it should be spoken in love. And he says here, to the contrary, I'm bold. Thank you, God, for people who will tell me I'm off track when I'm off track. Thank God for those who will say, that's ridiculous. Ooh, that's so severe. No, it's not. If we're bogged down in the flesh or we're distracted by something that we shouldn't be distracted by or if we're being petty or divisive or accusatory, sometimes we need somebody to say very boldly, remember what God has done in your life. Don't let this take hold. You're you're off track right now. He says, here, let's live for the Lord together. Do you see that? Let's have that challenge towards one another. It's not, oh, let's pursue the same hobbies, let's recreate together, let's be a social clique. But let's live for the Lord together. Let's run together. Let's 
feed and care for his sheep. Let's spread the gospel. Let's fill ourselves up with the word. Let's live for God together. Don't be unequally yoked, as it said in the last chapter, but the opposite of that is to be yoked with those. Let's, let's live together for God. But then also before that, do you see what he said? Let's die together. Is that something that we're even thinking of? Is this something that I would choose to talk about if I was a topical teacher? Hey, let's die together for God. But as the animosity in this world grows towards Christ, they hate him, so aren't they going to hate us? They persecuted him. Will they not persecute us? So we must let God challenge us to say, yes, let's live together. If we can't live together in Christ, do you think we're going to be able to die together in Christ? No, we're not. So here he says, when things get really bad, and at Paul's time, they certainly were bad, and they're killing people off for following Jesus, I'm still in, for better or for worse. I'm ready to die if that's what God says for him only, for his glory, for his truth. Paul and Timothy are taking joy in their tribulation and their persecution. And he is saying, I'm ready to die with you. So let's live for the Lord together. I notice how Paul doesn't dumb down his teaching because he knows that the Corinthians are not that mature. That's kind of what we like to do in instruction is like, okay, I got to get the teaching down there. And I do agree that we can't speak in such lofty terms that people can't understand it. But will we fail to allow God to challenge us with difficult truths just because we're not there yet, so to speak. No, God prepares us. When I look at Jesus' teaching during his earthly ministry, did he wait for his apostles to get it before he moved on? No. In fact, his apostles, the disciples, actually didn't get it much of the time as he was speaking truth to them. And he kept speaking these powerful truths, these everlasting principles to them. And time after time, they weren't grasping what he said. They were way more temporal and not really that eternal. But did that stop Jesus from teaching them in a very challenging manner or to try to get them to lift up their heads and see the big picture? No. And I see the same thing in the Apostle Paul, this model of, I'm ready to die for God with you. Now, these are people that are picking him apart like a bunch of complaining babies. These are people that, that are petty, that are backbiting, but he doesn't fail to teach them the reality. And the reality is that people are being imprisoned and persecuted for following Jesus. So how can we be so petty? Are we ready to die together for the sake of the cause? As we see the world get more and more anti-Christ, can we take shelter in America? Will the federal government protect us? It's becoming obvious, no. Saw the headline this morning about Canada taking away religious freedom. And this pastor's son who spoke out and said, look, we're losing our freedom. We don't have freedom of religion. We don't have freedom of assembly. We don't have freedom of speech anymore. And it's making this big, it should make a big, big turmoil out of things. But that's not just in Canada. It's right here. And we think, oh, we'll, we'll run from it. We'll, we'll go to a state where they have religious freedom. You guys, we already, the Civil War was already fought. The federal government 
is going to make the states do what they want to do, right? We think like, oh, that's a better place. We're going to have to have the resolve and say, you know what? Let's live together for the Lord because there will come a day when we're dying together for the Lord. Paul doesn't pull any punches. He says, that's the truth. Broaden your horizons. Always challenge the church to live beyond their current circumstance. I think that was, it was, our third topic. Don't be condemned, but be corrected. Now to verse 5. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforting in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Don't be downcast, but receive comfort. Don't be downcast, but receive comfort. When there was much trouble in serving, how did God comfort Paul? Non-rhetorical. There was a lot of trouble in serving. How did God choose to comfort Paul in that time? By bringing Titus back into his life again. God used a brother in the Lord to keep Paul from being downcast. Look at the situation. He didn't receive comfort from rest. Now, rest can be comforting at times. A reprieve, rejuvenation. But it says here that his body had no rest. So the comfort did not come from getting a restful few days or getting a restful season. Look at what else. It was not through removing conflicts. That's the kind of rest I ask God for. Remove the turmoil, remove the conflict. But look, the conflicts remained, didn't they? He still received comfort, but the turmoil and the difficulty was still there. Keep looking at your Bible. Was he comforted because he had inner resolve? This is the Apostle Paul, who we many times consider as this machine for the Lord, unstoppable, He's saying, I was scared. My circumstances were really, really bad. I didn't have a rest. But God comforted me through a brother. Titus came back into my life again. He was downcast, and a brother came and lifted him up. Are we getting this? God uses our fellow Christians as vessels of comfort. Sometimes we treat the way God works like a smorgasbord. And... We say, okay, these are all the things that the Bible says about how the Lord comforts us. He comforts us by His Spirit. He comforts us through His Word. And we say, Lord, those are the ones I'm comfortable with. Comfort me that way. And the Lord does what He chooses. He comforts us through each other. Are you open to being that comfort? In this case, it would be to be like Titus. And are you open to be comforted by another? I look at teachers pastors, elders, ministry leaders, and sometimes we get the mentality that we're the comforters, that we're the advice givers, and it's like just this way. Oh, wait for me to talk because I always know the answer. 
instead of just shutting up and realizing that we don't need to be talking all the time. That there are times when God's going to use someone else to give us just exactly what we need. Paul was open to that through Titus. And Titus was like a son to him. Timothy was like a son to him in the faith, but they were also very comforting to him. The person, what God was doing in Titus's life was comforting to the apostle Paul. Don't be downcast, but receive comfort. How? Through your brothers and through your sisters. Lord, I will receive straight from you, but not through your people. Look at what the word says. Paul and Timothy were comforted in this case. Paul, the relentless runner, needed a boost from his brother. We accept that kind of camaraderie in a lot of other areas in our lives. And we say, camaraderie is very important. Co-laborers, team, we call it, is so important. Do you know who invented all that? Designed all that? God did. And it's for our eternal good that we have others that we can lean on at times when we need to not be downcast and receive comfort. Titus shared the news that the Corinthians had received Paul's instruction. Do you see that? Paul wrote them a letter of correction. I think that was 1 Corinthians. Now, there may be another book that we don't have. It seems that there may be, but here, I think Paul is referring to the letter of 1 Corinthians, and Paul was encouraged to hear that the rebuke caused repentance. Think of this. The apostle writes this lengthy book, and he deals with all these sins in the Corinthian church, and he sends it off. But he doesn't know what the response is, and he's just knocking down one thing after another. You guys are getting drunk at communion. You have immorality right in the church, you know, sexual immorality, and you think it's just fine. And he just goes through issue after issue, and he tells them, like, don't be this way. But he didn't yet know how they received that. He didn't know if they said, forget you, Paul. We're going to keep doing what we're going to do. And now he gets this report from Titus that the letter that he penned to this corrupt church was received. Imagine the comfort that Paul had in his heart when he found out that the Corinthians had turned from their sins. You know what that's like. You're going to talk to somebody and you just don't know how they're going to take it. And hopefully you're praying like, I need to talk to them. By the way, the word says that we should go to them if it's at all possible, right? Go, and we sometimes just have that sick stomach, like, I don't want to say this. I don't know how they're going to take it. And Paul says later on, like, at first when I sent the letter, I kind of regretted it. He's really letting his humanity show. Like, I sent that letter off because I couldn't be with you. And I was like, man, how are they going to take this? Then he gets the news that the Corinthians received the correction and turned from their sins. What comfort he received in that. So he received comfort from Titus himself, but not only from just the person of Titus, but from the report. And look at what else. He rejoiced greatly that the reception of the letter was not where they stopped, but they, he rejoiced that they were appreciative towards him. It says here that they had zeal for Paul, that they were saying, Thank so can't you see why Paul was comforted? His brother, the good report, and his hearing of their reception, immense value they saw in Paul's ministry. So Paul is backing up and saying, look, you received correction before. That lifted my spirits so much when you did. 
I got this great report. But now you're going back again and you're starting to be the person that invents the fault again. So that was point number four. Don't be downcast, but receive comfort. Paul had a lot of trials, a lot of persecution, a lot of trouble, but he received comfort from his brother Titus in his report. We still have the longest topic remaining, which is don't just sorrow, but sorrow unto repentance. Don't just cry, but let your whole life cry out in a way where you turn away from yourself, you turn away from your sin, and you turn to God. I mean, today, if that's not the direction of your life, understand that that's what repentance is. Like, we're all headed somewhere. You're living for something. You're living for someone. Maybe you're living for self. Maybe you're living for God. And repentance, initial repentance, is how you're saved. You say, God, I'm turning from my sin, and I'm turning to you. you. You're in charge of my life. You loved me all the way to the cross. And now, how could I not give you my life for washing away my sins? But repentance is also something that happens in the life of a Christian over and over again. Let's wake up to this. That every time we fall on our faces, every time we get distracted and we go into the flesh, or go, that we just make a mindful decision to turn back to God again. Look at this repentance and how it's described. And let's sort out emotions and the reality of repentance as we read verses 8 through verse um, 11. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. So he wrote them the letter, it made them sorry for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you prove yourselves to be clear in this matter. Don't just sorrow, but have godly sorrow unto repentance. Look at what the word says. The Corinthians did cry. They were sad. But look at what happened in their lives, would you? They became diligent. Did you see that in your Bible? They proved by the way they lived that their life was different. It says here that they had desire, different desires. They're called vehement desires. That they had zeal for God. That's repentance. It's not just lip service. That's the real deal. Today, I see a lot of affirmative words but not a lot of action. I see it in us. I see it in the church where there are times that we're very touched, where we're very emotional, where we see our wrongs, we see our sin, because let's admit it, sin is sorrowful. It, it's, it's just sad. We see the result of it, and it's not wrong to cry. 
I'm a crier. I try not to cry at church, but crying is not necessarily bad. It's when we cry and there's no heart change. It's when we realize that we're on the wrong road, that we're messing up and we're sorrowful about it and, and we see that we're literally filthy wretches and then those tears don't produce any change in our actions. When, when I do cry, I mean, I try to be reasonable after the fact and, and ask God, like, was that just emotion or am I really going to live differently? And if I am going to live differently, specifically, how is that going to happen in my life? We watched a series of sermons from Pastor Jim Cimbala a couple months ago, midweek. They were just so powerful. I, I listened to them, and then I knew that I couldn't communicate those truths in the same way. I just said, I want the church to, to hear these, these truths. One of those sermons, when I first listened to it, I, I, was, I had to pull over because I was crying so much. And I hope you heard it. It was about, it was the one where he was talking about how the enemy is after our love for our fellow man and how we start to treat people with disdain because they're slobs and because they're lazy and because they're losers and we just get this belligerent attitude. And the pastor was sharing, I, I please listen to it because I would just have about how he had just preached and there was this man who wanted to talk with him. And, and his attitude, because the man was, was, was filthy and stinky and, and dirty, and like God wanted to use him, but he just wasn't open. He had just had such, such disdain, and, and he opened up as a pastor, as, as a teacher, as a servant of God, and just said, my heart was just way off. When I heard that, I just, it just hit me, and I just cried, right? Um, was that necessarily bad? No, but if I walk away and just keep living, like some people just disgust me so much that I can't love them, then my tears were for nothing, right? I don't know what I am. I'm like the kind of person who, I get asked for money everywhere I go. I ask my wife, do I look rich? Like, I don't know what it is. Like, as <laughs> soon as I get out of the car, hey, hey, you got some change? Like, it's just like, I, and people come, they pass eight people, they get to me, and I just despise people. I should despise, I should say, I despise laziness. Like, I just feel like grabbing that man who's half my age and saying, why, why can't you work? Like, that's me, right? And so then, instead of loving, not that I necessarily have to just fork out the money, like, I just have this disdain in me, right? And it's like, I need to be like Jesus. It's not that I can't be full for myself, that I'm so selfish and just going to continue on my ways, that kind of sorrow can be very good if it's godly sorrow which leads to repentance. And believe me, we need to repent a whole lot. Because otherwise, we can become people that are very agreeable with our words and seem to be very much ready for change. But then when the decision time comes in the next round, we make the same decision we made before the tears. We made the same decision we made before God touched our hearts. And that, Jesus calls out. Matthew 15, 7, he says, hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Look at the warning. Like, we can be emotional. We can be sad even. We can have all of this welling up inside of us. But if it's just lip service, Jesus says, you're a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to live for the Lord. I want to seek first his kingdom. I want to serve him. I'm all in. Here I am, Lord. But when decision time comes, life stays the same. The temptation is to go back to convenience instead of commitment. Which one is biblical? Commitment. To go back to giving out of my surplus instead of giving sacrificially. We should be slow to speak. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. We shouldn't just have an emotional response, but a practical response. That's what repentance works in our lives. Lord, today, because you've used these emotions, my life is going to be different. I'm not just saying I'm sorry. I'm turning away from that way of living. Metanoia, my mind is changed. It's not just what I've declared. This is my new direction. Lip service that doesn't translate to our lives. We want godly sorrow that leads to repentance. If the Lord convicts you, go ahead, cry your eyes out. Might be good for you. But then say, God, you didn't teach me this so that I could just cry. You taught me this so that I could be like you, so that I could turn from where I was. You know when you're around somebody, maybe they're close to you, I hope not, and they just have these talk, 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 and they know how to deliver the seemingly remorseful words and even the tears, but you start to lose confidence that they really mean it. That's what God's warning us about, isn't it? And he's saying, Corinthians, remember, you had a godly sorrow that led you to repentance. Go back to that again. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 18, and it's mostly about forgiveness, but it also speaks to us about the one who pleads, but there's no practical change. Jesus said this, a king called a debtor to him and he owed him 10,000 talents. That's 200,000 years wages. So the idea is here, this guy owed so much to the king, he could never repay it. And the king said, I want my money. And that debtor begged the king and said, be patient with me. He pleaded with him down on his knee saying, don't sell me into slavery because I can't pay my debt. And the king had mercy on him. Now that same servant who pleaded and begged went out and found somebody who owed him 600,000 times less, 100 denarii. And that same person begged him and said, show mercy on me. Give me time to get the, the funds together. And he had him thrown in prison. Now the king heard about this. What do you think his attitude was? He was not a happy king, right? He said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? You were so full of emotion when it came to your cause, but then you had a chance to live that out, and you didn't. All it was was a show. 
all it was, those were fake tears. It was fake pleading. If it would have been real, you would have turned around and had mercy on that debtor who owed you 600,000 times less money. It wasn't near the debt. That's begging, that's pleading without repentance. King Saul was a very emotional man, was he not? You said, oh yes, he was. You read about King Saul. He was a crier. He was a very tall guy, but he would cry. And he would speak with great swelling words at times. Typical politician, right? <laughs> Saul, King Saul was hunting David like an animal. And there was a time when he went into a cave to relieve himself. Couldn't find a tree, so he found a cave. And he goes into a cave, and David and his men are hiding from him in that very cave. And unbeknownst to King Saul, David secretly cut off a corner of his robe. I just don't know why they don't make movies about this stuff. It's the greatest. <laughs> it's like people say the Bible's not interesting. I'm like, I totally disagree. It's interesting, and it's just funny. He's in there, and David's men are saying, kill him. That's me, right? Now, the Lord has delivered him into your hand. And David chooses not to lift up his hand against Saul, but he chooses just to do the mischievous thing and cut off a corner of his robe. And then after that, David feels bad because he's like, I cut his robe up. It says that in the word, like, I feel bad. He's the king. God put him in office. Who am I to cut his robe? But then from a distance, there's this conversation that goes on between King Saul and David. And he says to the king, why are you telling people that I want to kill you? Look, here's your robe. It's proof that I don't want to kill you. I could have killed you and I didn't. And listen to Saul's response. Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day that you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. Two chapters later, Saul is trying to kill David again. What a drama king, right? <laughs> the, the guy, he's just like this. He cries, he's remorseful, so to speak, but then there's no repentance. This is what God says about tears that don't change your life. And I do title the sermons, even though I don't say the titles. The title of this one is Tears That Change Your Life. This is what God says about tears that don't change your life in Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. God says to the people of Israel, you're crying all over the altar, but you know what? You go out and you live the same way you lived before, and now I'm not receiving it. Weeping over your sin can be a really good thing. To cry because you realize how much you've disobeyed. To see how you've taken, listen to this, the grace of God for granted. That's what hits me when I'm thinking like, look at me. I'm taking God's grace. I'm taking his love and just acting like I don't care about it at all. 
sorrow can be something productive. There can be a reason behind those tears. Now, it can also just be a, just hurts. And that crying doesn't necessarily change anything. But when we're aiming for godly sorrow that leads to repentance, we're right where he wants us. We're not against weeping. Emotions aren't always bad. But we don't want to just weep and walk away and be the same. We live in a world that loves drama. It's just like a cycle of crying and then coming back around again. It's just, you get on the roller coaster with the rest of them, it's like, when are we going to stop this? I want a process of changing. And there might be some tears involved in that and a lot of emotion I feel really deeply. But let's just not be like that, where there's a lot of, a lot of emotion with not a lot of action. I bring up to you the Apostle Peter. He committed a very shameful sin. He denied that he even knew who Jesus was. In fact, he denounced Jesus with cursing. Jesus chose him, and he walked by Jesus' side for years. He did mighty things in his life, and then Peter, in his cowardice, chose to denounce Jesus three times, and the word says that when that third denial came, that his eyes met Jesus' eyes. That Jesus was looking right at him, and he was looking right at Jesus. He felt a ton of conviction at that point. Woe is me. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Look at my fear. Jesus was in his hour of trial. He was on the way to the cross. He was on the way to be crucified. And Peter did not stand with him. He completely wimped out. Jesus had said, you know, called him the little rock. He was crumbling at that point. His eyes met the eyes of Jesus. And then the word of God tells us that Peter went and he wept bitterly. He literally cried his eyes out because he saw his sin. But two months later, Peter was proclaiming the love of Jesus even though his life was threatened. Peter was standing up in front of anybody who would hear and saying, I'm going to live to please God, not man. He wept, but he also repented. The next time around, God gave him some boldness. He said, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm not going to live like a coward. I'm not going to, and he also, it wasn't condemnation because he didn't just say, forget it. I'm just going to go back to the fishing nets. No, he became a mighty vessel for the Lord. Tears that changed his life. Let's have godly sorrow that leads to repentance. We ask for that right now. Lord, move me. Shake me up. Don't leave me the way I am. Break me. Bring me to tears. But Lord, I, I can't just stay there. I must choose to live differently by the power of the Spirit. I, I pray for that repentance, Lord, in us. For the believers, I, I pray for repentance. 
For those who haven't believed, that's what I pray for. Just turn my life to you, Jesus. I pray that they would not overcomplicate it. It's not an easy decision, but it's, your word tells us that it's surrendering. I've had enough of myself. I need you, God. I've had enough of my own way. Enough of my sin. I need saving and I need direction. I pray that in remorse and in guilt, there would be the gift at the end of it, Lord, that they would receive the gift. Not just feel bad, not just say, boy, I feel bad again. I heard the word and feel bad. No, but Lord, that when we are convicted, we would, would come and experience your cleansing mercy. You're our strength. You always have been. I've never been able to do anything good apart from you, Lord. So I pray for for that realization and that reality in my life, Lord. Help me to put up the, the guidelines, the absolutes that will help me to be changed into your image. All of us, we pray. Jesus, amen.